0: This podcast is supported by Allstate. When I say the word vulnerable, what do you picture? Someone who's scared or weak? What if I told you vulnerability was actually a strength? It makes people and communities stronger. Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of embracing vulnerability in order to build trust and have constructive disagreements. Learn more at betterarguments.org.
1: This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Journalist Maria Shriver has been spreading awareness about Alzheimer's disease since her father, Sergeant Shriver, was diagnosed in 2003. Sergeant was a founding director of the Peace Corps and part of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. With the disease, Shriver says, his once whip-smart mind atrophied. When you see somebody like that not know who you are as their daughter, not
2: know what a nose is, not know what a pen is or a fork is, it is so jarring. It makes you wonder what's going to happen to you, but it also makes you
1: really curious about the brain. Today, Shriver joins Dr. Sanjay Gupta of CNN for a conversation about brain health. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Maria Shriver's father died of Alzheimer's in 2011, but Shriver continued to spread the message about the importance of brain health. She started the Women's Alzheimer's Movement and served as executive producer of an HBO documentary about the disease. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's dementia. Most are 75 years or older, according to the Alzheimer's Association. Brain disease can be prevented and slowed down. Sanjay Gupta, author of Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, says there are ways to heighten and protect brain function and maintain cognitive health at any age. Gupta and Shriver speak with Natalie Morales, West Coast anchor of NBC's Today Show. Here's Morales.
3: It's great to have you both here with us. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Exciting. Dr. Gupta, your book, you write specifically about potential risk factors and causes. There is no singular cause as we know, but what are some risk factors that we do know?
4: Well, you know, there there is a a, um, people always talk about their genes and there are certain genetic risk factors that may make you more likely, although, you know, people oftentimes confuse this idea that this is preordained at this point. If I have these particular genes or alleles as they are called, Um, but there are ones that make you more likely and there's some that are also protective as well. I think the way that I sort of thought about risk factors, especially with this book, because there are known risk factors that we have seen, but the idea that there are populations of people who seem to be more insulated from, you know, developing at least the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, I think is what I, what I focused on. Some of the ones that Maria has talked about in terms of lifestyle overall, a certain type of diet, a certain way of movement We oftentimes think, you know, what is good for the heart is good for the brain, and that is generally true, but the brain is different as well. And I think what has changed over the last 10 years is that the brain, which was kind of thought of as this black box, you can only really measure it by its inputs and its outputs. You couldn't see the internal sort of workings of it as well, or you couldn't objectively analyze how the brain was responding to a therapy or improving to a lifestyle intervention we have a better sense of that now so you know all, all these things that we think about overall in terms of things that uh, are more likely to be associated with disease are also in many ways risk factors for alzheimer's but there are specifics here i'll give you just one example you know we talk about movement and and, and exercise and we know that from a cardiovascular standpoint i also have heart disease in my family um, that that uh, exercise is good, uh, you know giving yourself cardiovascular challenges, improving cardiovascular endurance important, but what you also find, and I, I just found this really interesting, was that when you 're talking about the brain and the idea of actually growing new brain cells at any age, which is possible. we often thought you just got a certain number, you drained the cash, and you were done. that was it. You can grow new brain cells at any age, but from a movement standpoint, it is probably brisk moderate activity that is going to be better than intense because when you do brisk moderate activity you release certain neurotrophic factors these things that are sort of described as miracle grow for the brain uh, eric kandel describes it that way when you briskly exercise you're also releasing stress hormones and that can actually uh, countermend the the impact of the neurotrophic factors so good for the heart but not as good for the brain. But that's just an example of of not only what some of the risk factors are, but how we approach this differently based on new knowledge.
3: And I know you, you both preach about that exactly, about preaching prevention, early diagnosis, intervention. And Maria, let's talk more about why these factors are so important.
2: Well, I think what Sanjay was just saying is really important. At any age, you can improve your brain. And I think if we take anything away from this conversation, I hope it's that because people often think I'm 50, I'm 60, it's too late. It's not. Uh, I think anything you can do today to prevent Alzheimer's a year, two years, three years, that's a positive for your life and the life of your family. Uh, Sanjay talked about exercise and creating BDNF. We also know that sleep is really important. We also know, as he said, diet, what we're eating, how we're eating, really how we're living, how we're managing our stress, how we're engaging our brain. Uh, These are all factors in a quote, brain healthy lifestyle. And I think kind of promoting the idea of a brain healthy lifestyle, it used to be people didn't know, as Sanjay said, what a heart healthy lifestyle is. And people still aren't really familiar with a brain healthy lifestyle, they're looking for you know, a pill. but there are things within our power today that we can do that will make our tomorrow better. And I think that's why Sanjay's book is important because people want the information. They want to feel empowered today. And that's the really exciting thing. When I started as an activist in this space, everybody said, you cannot talk about lifestyle lifestyle doesn't matter. It's all about the genes. And they said, you know, it doesn't disproportionately impact women. So I think that we've the the narrative has changed a lot um, and it's going to change more. And when Sanjay talked about the brain, you know what's amazing, coming back to your first question, Adam, my dad was the most intelligent, smartest human being Barnot I had ever met. There wasn't a fact of history. There wasn't anything he didn't know, you know? And then when you see somebody like that not know who you are as a, their daughter, not know what a nose is, not know what a pen is or a fork is, it is so stunning. It is so jarring. And it, it does, as Sanjay said, you, makes you wonder what's going to happen to you, but it also makes you really curious about the brain. And we've learned so much about learning differences and whether it's you know different forms of dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, this is a whole new world. And I'm really hopeful that people will begin to talk in very kind of, what I say, main street ways about their brain, look at it as their greatest asset.
3: And that will become a kind of more normal part of our conversation. So let's dive deeper into what Sanjay calls the five pillars of brain health in his book. You've got MOVE, which we talked about, exercising, and you say exercise at least an hour a day, every day, not just three times a week, right, Dr. Gupta?
4: Yeah, yeah, no, I know I do, and I know that that immediately sort of, people are trying to figure out how to to put this into their their lives. One thing I just wanna follow up quickly on, on what Maria said, a healthy brain, if you just consider that term for a second, it's, it's interesting, right, because a healthy heart, it pumps a certain number of blood, a certain amount of blood with each contraction. A healthy liver will detoxify your blood uh, such and such amount. And you can measure these things. What is a healthy brain? It, it was a very fascinating sort of uh, topic of conversation with all these various neuroscientists. But it's it's a harder thing to, to measure, right? Oftentimes we measure it based on blood flow and things like that, but it's a different thing. And I it's a longer conversation, but I would I would encourage people to sort of think about it. One evolutionary biologist named Robert Sapolsky said this to me about that, which I loved. He he wrote this book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which kind of tells you everything about the book in the title. But it, it it was basically a healthy brain is a brain that has a wider circle of you. And and what he meant was when you are having a healthy brain, you're in a healthy brain period, you tend to be more empathetic, you tend to include more people in the circle of you. And I know that sounds a little nebulous, but when I really thought about it for a couple of years, I I realized how much sense it, it makes. And I know that I'm in a better place when my circle of you is expanded, I'm thinking more clearly, I'm happier, I'm more productive, all those things. I think the, the the point I was really making in the in the movement chapter was you know it was a basic one um, the human body really wasn't designed to sit or lie for twenty three hours a day and then go to the gym for an hour from a biological standpoint that's not how we were designed to to function so it was really about natural movements into your day as much as possible, which again people have heard this right you know park further away, try and do lawn work and all that sort of stuff but the point is that In many ways, people have long thought of activity as the cure. And what I think I really heard from all these scientists, and I'm basically a translator here, right, from these amazing neuroscientists, what I really heard from them is that inactivity is the disease. Don't think of activity as the cure, think of inactivity as the disease. Every time you're about to sit, ask, do I need to sit? Could I stand instead? Brisk walking, do it with a friend, talk about your problems but just inactivity is the disease. If that's the mindset, I think it'll help dictate your how you live.
3: And I like how you grouped it together with do it with a friend and talk about your problems because that's an important part of it as well with making the connections as you talk about as well, that social interaction and keeping your brain sharp and working out solutions with those you love around you. Maria, you've seen that as well with women. It's so important for us to have conversations and being able to, to engage in a conversation like that while also doing something active, how much more important is that?
2: Well, I think what's kind of Sanjay's point there is uh, something that I try to talk a lot because as we age, right, in many ways we become more isolated. Uh, people leave their jobs, Um, many people become single, they're not included in the social fabric. And so I think uh, when we talk about Alzheimer's, uh, we also have to talk about ageism, I think, uh, because so often so many millions of people as they age become depressed, become alone, become lonely. And that is also uh, a precursor, right, to Alzheimer's. So I think when we My hope is as we broaden this conversation, we'll also start talking about social connection, about loneliness, about ageism, about including our elders and people who are in their 60s and 70s into our social fabric more. If you study the blue zone areas where people live the longest, I think as Sanjay said, they're not going to the gym, they're walking, but they're in community. They're moving through the community, right? They have a spiritual life. People include them, people connect to them. So they eat a certain way, they kind of follow a circadian rhythm, they move as he said, they sleep, they do all of these things. So it's not just one thing that goes into having, as Sanjay talks about, a brain healthy lifestyle, but it's also an emotionally uh, healthy lifestyle. It's an inclusive lifestyle. And so when I try to talk
3: about Alzheimer's, I try to talk about all of these things together. Dr. Gupta, I know that's one of your pillars is to connect, but also to discover. Yeah. Discover meaning challenging your brain, right?
4: Yes. I, th- this is this was perhaps one of, the, one of the best insights I think I learned from uh, this particular avenue of research. And this, this ties into the growing new brain cells at any age. What I thought was so interesting is that the way that we use our brains uh, is in many ways kind of how we're probably living our COVID life right now. You know how to get, you're mostly at home probably, but you know how to get to the grocery store. You know how to get to maybe your kid's school, a few, a few places. You got that down pat. You could do that with your eyes closed. That's not a problem, but you're not traveling as much. You're not traveling on other roads. You're not going to other cities and all those sorts of things. And that's kind of how we typically use our brains. We use our entire brains, but we probably use 10% of it, 90% of the time. What I thought was so intriguing was this idea, uh, if you're talking about new brain cells, you're also talking about this idea of building cognitive reserve. You're building new areas, new cities, new roads in your brain. Now, why is that important? Um, It's important because it's kind of fun. You know, you can just sort of visit these other cities. Uh, It may manifest as you connecting dots that you otherwise wouldn't have thought about. You hear something, oh, you have this other school of thought on that. You can connect things maybe easier. But also, you know, to Maria's point, you know, we know that that Alzheimer's, if someone's gonna develop, it probably starts decades earlier in their brain than when they develop symptoms. Now, people will hear that and be frightened. Neuroscientists hear that and they say, so you're telling me that you could have plaques and tangles in the brain and the brain is still functioning normally. Okay, so let's focus on that. How do we get to that point? Well, if we build a lot of reserve in the brain, then let's say that road that you're driving to the grocery store every day that you know so well, you got it down pat, but all of a sudden it's blocked, maybe in the form of an amyloid plaque. If that's the only road you know, that can lead to cognitive dysfunction. If earlier in your life you've built all these new roads in the form of you know this cognitive resilience or reserve that we're talking about, you could bypass it. It's not that you wouldn't necessarily have plaque show up on a scan but you might not be affected by it. When we talk about lifestyle, what I find so intriguing about it, we're not, the lifestyle isn't to get rid of plaque necessarily. It's to make you be able to continue to function at your, at your normal cognitive level. That's the point. I don't care if I have plaque in my brain. I care if my memory has been affected, my judgment, my ability to love my kids, all that sort of stuff, recognize things. Could I have both where you know I don't worry about the disease, but still have you know, uh, this, this good function? I think it's possible. So that's, that's really, I, I think, what I, what I took away from that more than anything else. That's the discover part of it. And I always say, look, practice makes perfect. Do the crossword puzzles, play the piano, do whatever you do. That's great, but that's like driving the road that you already know so well, which is good. Practice makes perfect, but change builds resilience. So just doing new things. I've started taking a painting class, Maria, you'll be happy to know, we talked about this briefly. And I'm actually doing the entire class with my left hand. I'm right-handed.
1: Oh my goodness.
4: I mean, whatever it might be, if you you get out of your comfort zone, even in simple ways like that, that is how you actually stimulate neurogenesis, the building of these new brain cells. That's inspiring to me.
0: This podcast is supported by Allstate. If you look up the word vulnerable in the dictionary, it says susceptible to attack or injury. Yikes! Sounds like something you'd want to avoid, right? In fact, most of us do avoid vulnerable situations, like arguments, that put us in positions where our opinions might be rejected or challenged. By avoiding arguments and keeping our guard up, we ensure our feelings don't get hurt, but ultimately we end up hurting our ability to connect with others. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of embracing vulnerability in order to build trust with others and have constructive disagreements that can unite us. After all, part of protecting a community is bringing it together. Learn more at betterarguments.org. Maria,
3: uh, as you have been talking about and you're so passionate about, what a lot of women in particular don't realize is that Alzheimer's affects women women's brains twice more than it does men. What do we know about that and why that happens?
2: Unfortunately, not enough. Um, It disproportionately impacts women and particularly women of color. And that's why the women's Alzheimer's movement uh, was born. And that's why we fund research into women and women of all uh, colors and ages. That's why we try to uh, empower women to join clinical trials. So researchers and particularly women of color, to so researchers can begin to look at women. For so long, women were not part of trials. Women were not part of research. And all of the people in this space said, oh, you know, it's just because women live longer. That's the only thing. Well, that's completely incorrect, and so we're looking at you know the way women age. We're looking at women's brains uh, when they're perimenopausal, when they're menopausal, and beyond, and the way women even take cognitive tests is different than the way men do. So we're at the beginning of trying to understand what is happening in women's brains. But I try to encourage women, particularly women who are perimenopausal, and and even that is a range, right? But to begin talking to your doctor uh, when you're in your 40s about a cognitive baseline, about hormones. What do we know? Because of the Women's Health Initiative, women were terrified and everybody ran from hormones. And certainly, you know, if you have cancer in your family, that's a completely different uh, thing. But women should be talking to their doctors about the neuroprotection of hormones, about the window to begin taking hormones, how long to stay on it, and the benefits of that to having a healthy brain. That was never, when I was perimenopausal, no doctor ever talked to me about that period. And frankly, I wouldn't know any of this Were I not an Alzheimer's advocate and activist? Because I didn't hear it from my general practitioner, which is why at the Women's Alzheimer's Movement, we try to publish information about questions to ask your doctor, things you need to know as you age, as you lose estrogen. Um, So these are all things that women themselves, unfortunately, need to be empowered with and need to go to their doctors. Women often think that if they get a mammogram and a pap smear, that's it for them for life that's also not good, right? So I think women's health is also a new burgeoning space. That's why we opened the Women's Alzheimer's Prevention Center at the Cleveland Clinic in Vegas. And what was interesting to me about that, Natalie, is we announced that a year ago, the phone, the entire system crashed because women from every state and 13 countries applied to get in there. and is why the Cleveland Clinic is looking to expand these centers, which you know, ask women who are not symptomatic, but who are at risk to come in and start thinking about having a brain healthy lifestyle, looking at the pillars, as Sanjay calls them, uh, getting their labs in order, looking
3: at places that they could maybe make improvement. And I want to talk about the, the financial, the emotional toll, especially when it yeah. comes to caregivers. I mean, I know from my own uh, personal uh story my father-in-law took care of my mother-in-law for 15 years as she was diagnosed with early onset alzheimer's and suffered with and eventually died from it but um that is 15 years that it impacted him health-wise financially in every way dr gupta what do we know about the the physical toll that this takes on caregivers as well
4: We know that um, some of the the highest rates of unpaid caregiving in the country revolve around dementia. Uh, We know that people who are caregivers are at higher risk for developing dementia themselves, as well as just about every other chronic disease you could mention. Um, I I was particularly surprised that caregivers have some of the highest rates of isolation and loneliness, uh, despite the fact that they're caring for somebody because it is so consuming. Um, and you know, I, I think it's, it's, um, on top of that, it's obviously one of the most emotional sort of tasks people will ever take on my mom. I, you know, I was, I was a kid, I was a teenager, 13, 14 years old, but I saw my mom, that was her life taking care of her father after his diagnosis. I mean, that was every weekend, every evening, you know, it was, that was our life. And, you know, we were, we were in a way lucky to be able to do it but it was, it, it defined us, I think for a good 10, 10 years, you know, so there is a larger conversation. I think about how we think about healthcare systems, how we are so, so disease focused uh, prevention that has be- become a big topic of discussion, but how we think about the bricks and mortar care structures versus more neighborhood community clinics, people that can actually come together to offer help and assistance outside of just, The medicalization of a problem, I think, is really important. Who are we as a country in terms of how we take care of people who who need this sort of help?
2: I'd like to just uh, kind of riff off of what Sanjay is saying. I think we need to elevate the word care in our country. Who we care for, how do we care, what do we care about? Um, you know, two thirds of the caregivers, as I said, are women. Women are dropping out of the workforce to care for aging parents, moving parents into their homes. Um, I have four brothers who, when my dad and my mom got sick, my mom ended up at the same time my dad had Alzheimer's, she was having strokes, breaking her hip. So they had two different sets of caregivers, um, very different. Um, Uh, kinds of caregivers. And I, for the last year and a half, I've just developed a big task for, I was on a task force chaired here in California. We have more people with Alzheimer's than any other state in the nation, more caregivers than any other state in the nation. And governor asked me and the task force to map out what it would take for California to meet this unmet need. Every state in this country uh, needs more caregivers. Every state in this country needs more geriatric doctors, more geriatric psychologists. And so we need to look creatively and inventively at the way we kind of manage care and handle care and support care. And I'm very hopeful that President Biden will take on this issue of the care economy of Alzheimer's of a care force, you know, much like we're looking at kind of relieving student debt. If you go into a care force for two years coming out of college, what are the different ways we can incentivize care and get people interested
3: in that as a career? Mm -hmm. And I just wanna give you guys both last word and last thoughts, Dr. Gupta, um, speaking of caregivers, what, what do you do if you do receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or if somebody in your family has received a diagnosis, what's, what's your first line and wh- where do you go to first? Yeah, well, you know,
4: one thing I, I do think the diagnosis is is important. I, this, is a, this is an area that I think people have good, you know, worthy discussions about, like, should I even be tested for risk factors? You know, what am I going to do about it if I do come back with a diagnosis? I, I, having assimilated all this information, realize that being having more information, getting a diagnosis is better because there are things you can do to prepare. First of all, I, you know, I, I, I am optimistic and I'm careful here, but I'm optimistic that Uh, Based on some of the things we've learned over the last 10 years that you can make a difference in the in the progression of someone's Alzheimer's disease. I don't want to say necessarily we can reverse it, although there are neuroscientists now that are writing papers about reversing Alzheimer's disease. I just I I just want to be careful there because it's very nascent days, like a, a quarter century from now, we may be looking at this completely differently, and I hope we are but I do think that we can really slow the march. And that's part of the reason you want to have a diagnosis. I think as a doctor myself, I think there's, there's discussions that I have with patients all the time, but I realize what's informed them the most are hearing and talking to people who have, who have experienced some of what they're experiencing.
3: Mm-hmm. And Maria, what about you? Any, well, any I... words of advice for anybody who's dealing with this head on?
2: Um... Well, I guess first and foremost is take a deep breath. Uh, As one doctor said to me when uh, I was talking to him about my dad, he said, you know, I've seen one case of Alzheimer's. I've seen one case of Alzheimer's. Um, So take a deep breath. Uh, We work with a lot of people who are living with Alzheimer's and are still active members of society who are out there lobbying, working on the task force, working on behalf of the women's Alzheimer's movement. Uh, So it doesn't mean that your entire world is gonna fall apart in that instance. So I think, you know, there are people running triathlons, as I said. So uh, I think kind of changing our perception of what it means to have Alzheimer's. We see young people who've been diagnosed who are out there. So I think take a deep breath. I think the kind of obvious things are is, you know, get to a doctor, perhaps join a clinical trial. That's really important. We need more and more people to join clinical trials and you get excellent care when you join a clinical trial. So that's a positive of that, right? Um, I think, and, you know, as Sanjay said, to stay in the community, but that means also for the community to embrace you. I think when my dad was diagnosed, everybody whispered and was scared and looked and pointed, and there was a feeling of shame, really, and embarrassment that came with that diagnosis. So I think if we could be more loving more compassionate, more caring as a society. And somebody says, you know, my mom has Alzheimer's, my dad, my husband, that we take them in, that we care for them and that we tell them about what we know and support groups. There are a lot of support groups that are out there. And also that we don't judge. I hear people all the time saying, you know, like, well, I would never have put my wife in a, you know, memory care facility and Joe Blow did that, none of us know really what families are going through who have a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia. And so I think refraining from judgment, taking a deep breath, building a community, joining a support group, joining a
3: clinical trial and reaching out for help. And with the two of you on the front lines and Helping spread awareness and the importance of your message, I have a feeling we're going to we're going to continue to make great strides, and we're going to know so much more within the next one to ten years, even. So, Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Maria Shriver, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. It's been such a pleasure and an important conversation to be continued for
1: sure. Thank you, Madeline. So- Sanjay Gupta is chief medical correspondent for CNN. He's the author of Keep Sharp, which was released in January of this year. Maria Shriver is an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, and founder of the women's Alzheimer's movement. Natalie Morales is the West Coast anchor of NBC's Today Show and a correspondent for Dateline. Their conversation was held in April at Aspen Ideas Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Tricia Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
0: This podcast is supported by Allstate. Let's be honest, no one likes to feel vulnerable. But as the saying goes, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of embracing vulnerability in order to build trust and have constructive disagreements that can strengthen our communities. Learn more at betterarguments.org.